you're a veteran or military spouse of an early stage startup or small business and feel like you're making it up as you go, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to The Transition, where we demystify the entrepreneurial experience for veterans and military spouses who've already made or looking to make the transition from the military into entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Iron Mike Stedman, the voice of The Bunker. I'm a Marine Corps veteran, social entrepreneur, and member of The Bunker Labs branding team. You're in for a treat today as I sit down with Patrick Fitzgerald, an angel investor, startup advisor, and lecturer at the Ward School of Business, where he's taught entrepreneurship to undergraduates and MBA students for the last 11 years. A few years ago, I came across a YouTube video of one of Patrick's lectures to MBA students entitled Business Plan Writing 101, which in my opinion is one of the best lectures I've ever heard on writing a formalized business plan. In the age of the lean startup and business model canvas, it was refreshing to hear a modern take on business planning and why it's still relevant today. I finally reached out to Patrick on LinkedIn and Twitter and invited him on the show to discuss how to develop a business plan to which he kindly obliged and offered to record in person. In the following episode, Patrick takes us through his business planning framework for first-time entrepreneurs and how you can leverage it to achieve entrepreneurial success. Before you hear from Patrick and I, be sure to subscribe to the Transition Newsletter at the link in the show notes. If there's a topic you'd like me to cover, either on the show or newsletter, feel free to reach out to me at mike.stedman at barkerlabs.org or message me directly on LinkedIn at Iron Mike Stedman. I also want to let everyone know that pre-orders are available for my first book, Black Veteran Entrepreneur. Validate your business model, build your brand, and step into your greatness. As listeners of the show, I'd be honored to have you support my pre-order campaign at the link in the show notes. The book is expected to ship October of this year, so be on the lookout. This episode of The Transition is brought to you by MetLife Foundation and their commitment to supporting veteran and military spouse entrepreneurs. In addition, the foundation also provides mentorship and financial health resources to veterans and military spouses transitioning into the workforce. As always, I hope you enjoyed today's show and that accelerates you on your own entrepreneurial journey. Patrick, welcome to The Bunker. So it's an honor to have you here today. We're actually recording in person. And to be honest, you are probably like my third in-person guest, but you're the first time to reach, you're the first guest to actually um, reach out to me in Newark and say, hey, let's record in person. I've done it previously, flying to a Bunker Labs event. I got to capture some interviews there, but like recording in my studio, you're the first guest. (laughs) And so it's an honor to have you. There's nothing better in person. I think uh, with entrepreneurship and everything else. Yeah, you actually caught me off guard. I was like, uh, I assumed you're just a busy person, but <laughs> you taking the time to come here and speak to our audience really shows about your character and uh, your your passion for impacting uh, entrepreneurs of all shapes and sizes. And so I guess we'll go ahead and get started. You know, I would love for you to introduce yourself and then I'm going to get to why I invited you on the podcast. Sure. Um, so I have been in the entrepreneurship game on so many different fronts for the past 20 years now. Um, I've been a builder from scratch, you know, take the cocktail napkin drawing idea, somehow create a company out of that, that, you know, generates revenue and uh, attracts venture capital and hires employees. I've been uh, a failed entrepreneur many times where you have an idea and it just takes two years out of your life and it doesn't work. I've been an investor. Uh, I've ran a startup accelerator, so similar to like Bunker Labs and things like that. And then I've worked at Fortune 500 companies trying to find entrepreneurs in there. Ultimately, 
Uh, I've been lucky enough to teach at Wharton for the past 11 years now. And in doing so, you know, it's a safe environment, but I get to meet some of the smartest potential entrepreneurs in the world. So I was able to see, you know, Venmo before it was Venmo and Deliveroo before it was Deliveroo and uh, all kinds of different concepts and ideas uh, before they become a reality in that safe academic environment. So whether it's a teacher, operator, investor, or, you know, failed entrepreneur, I think I've done most of it. So when somebody asks you, what do you do these days? How do you describe yourself? I try to say that I, I tap into as many potential entrepreneurs as I can. Everyone has that inner entrepreneur. Everyone has those ideas in the shower uh, or they're sitting there in the backyard just kind of thinking about stuff. So I like to think that in any of those roles, uh, investor, teacher, working at a Fortune 500 company, to tap into that that person who's been sitting about and thinking about that idea and say, well, here's actually the steps you could try it. You could try to do that. Um, so it's not the easiest answer to give to my mother. What do you do on a daily basis? <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, I think most entrepreneurs can relate to that. Yeah. And I also think it's a time we're in now. People do so much different things and we don't always identify ourselves by our job or our work. You know, it's like, oh, what do you do? Well, I do a bunch of different stuff, a riot, a podcast, I run companies. It's like, how do we get it down in like one phrase that makes sense to people? I spend probably the first two weeks of my Wharton class, um, talking to entrepreneurs about that two sentence pitch of what it is you do. Mm -hmm. And as you can hear from me, I'm, I still struggle with it. You know what I mean? I think we all do. Um, unless you have that cookie cutter job, right? As right. an accountant or a lawyer or, you know, a surgeon. Um, those are maybe a bit easier to explain. So one of the reasons we have uh, Mr. Fitzgerald here today is because many of you know, I'm an autodidact. So I'm a self-taught learner. I do not have an MBA. But I find myself scrolling the internet from time to time, hopping in different lectures that I can find online on YouTube from Harvard, Warden, Stanford, etc. And I came across an amazing lecture on business plan writing 101 taught by uh, Pat. And it was probably one of the best lectures oh, I've you. heard on business planning. And for me, it was interesting because, you know, we're very much in this kind of lean startup phase, this methodology that's being taught business model, canvas, et cetera. And yet, like, the way you broke down a business plan really caught my attention. And so I was so blown away by the lecture. It actually took me almost like a year to, to track you down before I actually reached out to you. But finally, I was like, you know what? I got to get him on the Transition Podcast. So I reached out to him on Twitter, reached out to him on LinkedIn. He got back to me, and uh, here we are today. And I just thought it'd be so good for our audience to um, talk about business planning because – you know, again, for so many of us that are small business owners, that are bootstrap, there is value in business planning. And I think the way you break it down makes a lot more sense than the old school. You walk into the Service Corps retired executives by the SBA. Right. You kind of have an idea, haven't really validated your business model or anything. And they hand you this giant like packet to fill out. <laughs> and you're like, I don't even know how to be an entrepreneur at this point. Right, right, right. But as someone like myself, that's like an operator been beat up, jaw been broke, been knocked down yeah. like Muhammad Ali. I can see and value that it's not necessarily the the plan itself, but more of understanding each phase of your business and how it all works together. So I think that's the value of it, the ability to be able to, to write it down because it gets it out of your head and now you get in the process of conveying to other people, like how does this whole thing work? And so before we go through that, I got I'm putting you on the spot actually. One of the things we do with all our guests on the transition is we take off our armor. So as you're aware, 
as entrepreneurs, there's a lot of like wins on LinkedIn and social media. People assume that everyone's winning all the time and right. got it going on. But those of us behind the scenes as entrepreneurs, a lot of times it's like the Wizard of Oz. We're pulling a bunch of strings. We're dealing with personal issues and God knows what else. And so uh, I would love for you to kind of take off your armor and let our listeners know something you're struggling with in your own like entrepreneurial journey as an operator, as a teacher um, that people might not realize. So I, I think one of the hardest values and lessons that many an entrepreneur goes through is failure. So one of the things that I wrestle with is trying to look at those failures as learning experiences, right? So I've had some painful, uh, you know, venture-backed entrepreneurial endeavors that I thought were the greatest thing, right? And you go out there and you pitch it to your family, your friends, you talk about it with your wife and your your kids and you get everybody excited about it. And then it doesn't work. Like people just don't buy the product. Um, so you have this sort of personal endeavor because you've really tried to get everybody bought in. And then you have that professional endeavor where you're trying to sell it to the customers. So I would say the, the armor that I would take down is, or, or to think about constantly that I'm, I'm thinking on now is, you have to keep putting yourself out there as an entrepreneur. You, you, you can't not involve your family, your friends, your neighbors, your cousins, your kids, your aunts, your uncles. You have to because that 100%-ness of being an entrepreneur is how you succeed or how you fail. Um, but I think later in my career, of, uh, I don't do I want to like really go all out there again, right? Um, but ultimately, if, if you're true to yourself and true to being an entrepreneur, that is only way you can do it i appreciate you being vulnerable with a bunch of uh our listeners all across the country and all across the world and i'll be honest like you've encouraged me to take off my armor too and uh for me uh when i was transitioning out of the military i didn't think i was smart enough to go to business school entrepreneurship wasn't necessarily the first thing on my mind i just wanted to start a free boxing gym for youth and young adults um in the city of newark new jersey and so uh, I never applied. Uh, I took the SAT like six times. So I was like, there's no way I'm going to pass the GMAT. Mm-hmm. So I didn't even bother. And now that I've been on an entrepreneur for the last like three or four years or so, I really going back to like 2015, actually, when I got out. Yeah. But I didn't necessarily view myself as an entrepreneur until about, you know, 2017 or so. Um, but, yeah, that was one of the reasons I think I troll the Internet for a lot of these classes, try to get those best practices. But, you know, that self-confidence, that imposter syndrome – all of that is very real for a lot of us, you know, first timers out there. And I thought that, you know, because I wasn't smart enough to go to business school, that I couldn't be an entrepreneur. Yet, you know, here I am. Yeah, exactly. And, I, and the the, um, the imposter syndrome, I think it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But as an entrepreneur, every day you're an imposter. Like you don't know that your idea is good or bad, and every day it could be worse than the next. So you're always pretending. You're always selling. Um, and I, it, that is a challenge. Now, the where the opposite of it is as imposter syndrome is you're committed to building something and that you know you want to do. Right? That's not being an imposter. When you're talking to a customer, you're not pretending. You're, you're really saying, this is, my pa- this is my passion. This is my vision. Are you interested or not? Um, and that's real. That's not an imposter, right? So I think there's, there's two sides of the coin. Uh, but I, you know, I just, before I forget, I like the way that you phrase the YouTube video as, um, different phases of thinking about the business. It doesn't have to be as structured as a business plan. I didn't go to business school either. My parents were high school teachers. I didn't necessarily 
know how to write a business plan, but I remember going to the SBA and them doing the same thing to me, opening up this binder. I don't know what this, what these words mean. But what I try to do in that YouTube video in the class is say, let's just break it down into competition. You know what competition means. You know who your potential competitors are as, as you have an idea. Just have an understanding of it. That's all I'm asking you to do. Or when you think about you know, the types of team, you know the types of people you need. So hopefully, naturally, that kind of comes together in a quote-unquote business plan without the drama of a 500-page document. It's just thinking about the different segments of it so that when you talk to an investor or talk to a customer or you talk to your friends about it, you, you know, okay, you're a little educated about it and you have some sense about what, what's going to happen next. So you've been teaching this class for, what, 11 years now? Yes. And was that what you were brought in initially for, to teach business planning? I think so. Um, I had I had come in a few times as a guest lecturer. And to be honest, I was in the middle of building my first company when they asked me to come in, and I didn't think I was really ready for it. I was like, ah, eh, you know, what do I know? But it was in the building of the second one where I think – you know, Wharton and others started to say, okay, he's not like a one-trick pony. This is clearly what this guy wants to do with his life. And I was doing a little bit of angel investing as well. So, um, you know, the, the goal was to give students the space over the course of four to five months where they felt, hey, they could, they could think about the business in those different phases and maybe at the end of the semester have a tough decision to make about whether or not to start that company full-time or put it on the back burner or, you know, go – work at a bank or whatever it may be, but always had that framework. Um, so, you know, sidebar, I would say four years after graduation, I'll have five or six students come back and say, hey, I've been thinking about that idea I had in my class. I think now will be the time to, to launch it. Um, so sometimes it's not, you know, the right time in life for you to start things. So let's let's start with your business planning process. Take, a, take us through it. I know one of the things you start off with was, even when we're describing ourselves, it's like, what do you do? Like, what's this idea that you have in your mind? How do you explain it to other people? That's the hardest part. I don't know why, but it is the hardest part. Being able to explain sort of the user experience, what your vision of what your product would be in a way that almost everyone can understand it of a certain age, and then how you make that a reality, right? So I call it like the front end and the back end. Here's the product I'm making, the, the, the new toy, right? Let's just say it's a toy, right? I want this toy to look like this and to appeal to kids in this way. Okay, you can explain that. How are you going to make that? What's the infrastructure you're going to make that? What's the manufacturing process? So that, that sort of front end and back end is really hard to explain uh, unless, you're, again, you're doing something very cookie cutter. But in that way, it's still hard as well. If you want to open up an Argentinian restaurant, you're going to have to explain to people what the attributes of an Argentinian restaurant are why yours is different, why it's unique, what the experience is going to be like, and then how you do it. Where do you get those materials from? Where do you get that food? How is it sourced? Is that That's all part of it. Um, that sort of what you do and how you do it is really hard for any entrepreneur, and I don't care what industry you're in. So really quantifying that kind of elevator pitch or that executive summary. It's like how do I explain to people what it is we're trying to do with this business, what we're hoping to accomplish? Well, the elevator pitch is, is, a, is certainly more succinct right? But the elevator pitch is to get you to get a hook so that you meet that person in the elevator and you have two minutes and you get into it with them and you explain them very quickly what it is you do. You want them to say, I need to hear more. And that's when you can really dive into that front end and use you know, and back end of the user experience. The elevator pitch is 
very quickly, get someone excited about what you're doing and to get to the next meeting, get to the, Oh, that sounds really cool. Here's my card. Call me, whatever it may be. And that's when you have to be the, get in there in the room and be able to explain, okay, I got you in the elevator. You kind of liked about what I was doing. Now let me tell you how it's going to work. And that's really hard. Um, so I, I'll give you a quick example if you want. Yep. Um, so we were starting our, uh, my first company, uh, about 15 years ago. And the concept was to pay people to recycle. So you get someone in the elevator and you say, hey, do you recycle? And they say, uh, yeah, I do. Maybe I don't. I don't know. And you say, well, did you know that New York City is going to cancel recycling soon? Jeez, like one of the largest cities in the world is going to cancel recycling? Why is that? Because there's no financial incentive to recycle. We are going to pay you to recycle. We're going to pay people to recycle. So that ultimate hook of saying, you're going to pay someone to recycle. That's cool. I want to hear more. Like, tell me more about that, right? And then you get into the how and why you do it at the next meeting or the next phone call, whatever it may be. And the how and why is talking about as a homeowner, you are going to be paid and rewarded by Whole Foods, Starbucks, Coca-Cola based on how much and how often you recycle. Okay, I want to hear more, right? So the whole goal here is to kind of pull people in. And how are you going to do that? Well, there's an RFID sticker that's going to be placed on every homeowner's recycling container. And on the morning of pickup, that's going to register to that household that Mike Stedman recycled five pounds today, and every week he recycled five pounds, and that is translated into a dollar amount that he can use at Whole Foods. So now I've tried to, and this is 15 years ago, so I may have forgot some of the details, I've tried to explain to you the front end and back end of how it's going to experience for you. And initially, I think with the elevator pitch, I tried to get you excited about the fact that I was going to pay you to recycle. So once we explain our idea, I think the next thing you have is the management and team bio. So, like, who's the person leading it? Like, why Why are you the founder, the person that is, how do I say this, uniquely positioned <laughs> to bring this venture to market and make it successful? So now, you know, having some hindsight, what you look at is three things. One is, does this entrepreneur have any industry or domain experience at all? More often than not, the answer is no, right? Second thing you look for is, okay, do they have any entrepreneurial experience? And that entrepreneurial experience, I think, is very broad. But do they have something that is uniquely qualified or positioned? Maybe they've achieved something outside of business. Maybe they are a marathon runner. Maybe they spent 10 years in the military. Maybe they've done, you know, they were a world-class ballet dancer. That's someone who has a mind to push themselves and, and be aggressive. Um, so those are the first two things. And the last thing is, well, maybe they don't have either one of those things, but are they able to bring other people to the table to help them, right? Um, so in the case of that first example, Recycle Bank, I didn't have any recycling experience or trash experience. My family, did, I knew nothing about it. But recruiting someone who has 50 years of it or 30 years of it, bringing them to the table, now people look around and say, oh, you, you must have something to be able to convince people like that. So those are the three main things, right? And you kind of fill those out and say, well, if I don't have entrepreneurial experience or I don't have some sort of excel uh, or excellence in, in my background, who can I bring else to the table? And if you can do all of those things, then you're pretty well positioned to think as an entrepreneur. One of the things we haven't talked about a lot on this show yet, but I want to, is advisory boards mm -hmm. and the importance of having them on your team as subject matter experts. So like you said, I might not be an expert at recycling, but I can recruit someone you know, that has been in that field to maybe toss them some equity or something, mm -hmm. but to really be a sounding board 
for navigating the space. I had a uh, vending machine for parents on the go, right? So diapers, wipes, pacifiers, sippy cups, all those kind of things. And we had those at SeaWorld, Legoland, places you can think of. That luckily, we were able to recruit to our advisory board someone who ran an, a vending high school, teaching students in high school you know, what the vending business was like. Because I knew nothing about vending. But to have someone like that who you know, teaches vending technology and what vending machines work and all those kinds of things, he's been doing it for 30 years, having that person come to the table was like free money right there. Um, so we luckily were, I think we gave him a little bit of equity, I don't remember, but at the end of the day, having those people at the table is so, so important. How early on should you start recruiting advisors? And does that even work for small business owners? So I'm a veteran, a military spouse, starting my company out of my apartment, you know, side hustling, et cetera. Should I be reaching out to people and ask them to come and be an advisor? If so, how many should I be looking to recruit? All right. So you need to make sure that you have a very quantifiable demand from them. Like anybody can tell stories. Anybody can make you feel good. But I need a specific skill or knowledge from you uh, at that early stage. Maybe later stage, right? Or it, maybe it's outside the small business realm. It's okay to ha kind of have those people to be a cheerleading and support team. But at the very, very beginning, if you don't know anything about finance, get someone on your team who can help you a little bit with the accounting of things. If you don't know anything about law, see if you can get somebody on your team who can help you with that. But it has to be very, very specific and quantifiable. If not, it's a little bit wasted time of just sort of, uh, you know, feel good sessions or crying sessions. Um, getting back to your question about the numbers, I would say manageable, three to five people, you know, a SWAT team approach. Hey, listen, I just need you for 30 minutes a week and maybe not even that. And I may just be shooting you texts or questions about, you know, accounting or finance or law or whatever it may be. Um, but, you know, keep it real tight. Yeah, I think it is a superpower. And a lot of people don't understand this. Like first time entrepreneurs, even like me, you were talking on Zoom before we record is, we don't know what we're doing, right? We're just kind of making up. But you start to see the trends and the tools that successful entrepreneurs use, such as having an advisory board or having a coach or all these different things that help them uh, succeed and navigate the space. You know, one of the credits to my success as a lady is I have a business coach. So, and I'm part of a coaching group that acts as my informal advisory board. So when I need specific ads, such as contracts and all this other stuff, we jump on Zoom and we chop it up and they help me tighten it up. And it doesn't take long, right? If you have experts, very specifically, you can ask questions that they have the answer to. Um, and I, I, I've had advisory board members that I've used for five minutes a month because they have a very specific need. And I just say, hey, what about this? Can I do this? Or should I do this? Yes or no? Very, very quickly. Um, at the end of the day, the skill for all entrepreneurs, obviously, is the ability to track that team. That's really hard. And you'll hear most successful entrepreneurs um, as the company is five, seven, nine years out later, they say, all I do is hire now. Like I just hire smarter people than me around me. Um, but that starts at the beginning is maybe not hiring those people, you're bringing them onto your advisory board, but that power and that persuasive nature to bring them to your team, you got to start that early. I've, I forgot where I heard the quote, but it was like, if you want to win a Super Bowl, recruit seven players that have already been or surround yourself with a team that's been there before because they know what to look for. They can identify the talent, and they can help you build out uh, the team that you need. So once we have our team built, we got the management dialed in, including the founders, co-founders, advisory boards. 
what's next? Do we need to look at operations, like how this business model actually works, how it generates revenue? I think to protect yourself and to put yourself at ease and your team at ease, I always advocate for 30 minutes a week where you freak out about competition. So really start looking into your and sort of, you know, either have an Excel spreadsheet or just have a, you know, a deck where you understand who your competitors are, research them, because every week you're going to find something new. Oh, my God, like my competitors doing the exact same thing as me. Most times they're not. But it's good to have that healthy freak out so you understand that it's not just you. Because honestly, if you're the only person in this world doing your business, probably not that good of a business, right? But if you're able to research five to seven competitors, have a sense of, you know, do, are they failing? Are they succeeding? What's working for them? Have they been able to recruit the right team or the right investors? I'm seeing their ads on LinkedIn or I'm seeing their ads on Twitter. Oh, they got something going on competitive. Make sure you spend at least 30 minutes a week doing that. Probably stop it at 30 week, thirty minutes, because if you go above that, then you're like, oh, I should quit because they're, they're better than me. Um, and, and honestly, you know, that's what people more often than not in the outside world will ask you. So, Mike, great idea. I, I think I heard like six other people doing that. And you have to be able to come back and say, actually, they are. It's great. Here's why we're different. Or... Eh, let me tell you why those companies aren't doing that well. We're going to have a, a different strategy because that's what everyone thinks about when they watch Shark Tank or whatever is competitor, competitor, competitor. Um, do I think to some degree prevent you from doing it? Just kind of scare you away like someone else has already done that. So just have a healthy understanding and a knowledge of it. Write it down if you have to um, and keep track of it. The reason I think understanding the competitors are so important is because when a potential customer or a client is looking at solving a solution for their pain because we you know building painkillers here. Mm -hmm. They're gonna think about the different options in the space, and so by you understanding what options are available and positioning yourself accordingly, that differentiates you from the competition. That's a very important part of branding your company. I'm a brand guy, yep. right? So you got to understand the competition so that you can again differentiate yourself. But you said something I went over people's head a little bit. You said if there's no competitors in the space, that might not be a good idea. And the reason being because a couple of reasons, I think, right? I forgot the author who wrote the book, Blue Ocean Strategy. And it's like, oh, if you see a blue ocean, there's no fish there. You can go take advantage of it, et cetera, versus a red ocean where there's competition in the water. So like me with podcasting, monetizing off of ads, that's red ocean. You know, when I jumped into pop production, so podcasting as yeah. a service, I saw it as a relatively <clears throat> blue ocean. But here's what I've learned about Blue Oceans, too. If there's no money spending in the space, that means that there might not be a market there. And the reasons, top two reasons businesses fail are no market need and they run out of cash. So no matter how amazing of an entrepreneur and amazing team you have, if there's no market need, you're going you're gonna to sink. Yeah, it, ideas are unique and it's exciting to think that you're the only person in the world doing that. But really kind of go down that that rabbit hole and if you truly are the only person who's thinking about revolutionizing recycling by the way of incentives that's a challenge now luckily in that case we're able to find those different people who are doing like kind of what we're doing and that's all i'm saying is find that there's somebody who's kind of doing something that you're doing or close enough where one could argue that that's a direct competitor before facebook there was MySpace. Before MySpace, there was Friendster. And on and on and on we go. 
So it's not necessarily saying that you know you must find a competitor, but if there's no one even in the realm of possibility, then you're not thinking about it. And let's let's just use SpaceX for example. There were people looking at space travel before Elon Musk, right? So even he, you know, who, who's you know one of the entrepreneurs of our time, is in a competitive market. And that's just a way to kind of validate, right? Is there something here, right? That's really what we're talking about. Can you validate by looking at the competition, looking at how people are spending money, that there's a demand for what you could potentially be offering in the future? There's always an offshoot. So I advocate when you're doing your two-sentence two pitch, right, your elevator pitch, that you are the first. I, I'm the first one who's doing this, this very specific sentence, Right. But does it fall under the realm of something that already exists? Absolutely. Right. It, it, it 100% does. So it's just the ability to say, while yes, there was MySpace at this point, Facebook is the first company to do these other things. Right. So you can see the connection that well, it sounds like it's a not necessarily a new idea, but how they're going to spin it becomes a new idea over time. One of the things that's interesting about competition, though, I've seen the very bureaucratic marketers. And they make the long spreadsheets and they do all this other stuff. But then they're like frozen, right? And so for a lot of us as like the entrepreneurs, we're also the operators. We execute. So how do you balance between all this like market research, competition? And it's great to have all this, but like what are we doing with it? So how you get out of that bubble and that paralysis as an entrepreneur is to go talk to customers. And as a first-time entrepreneur for me a long, long time ago, I did not. I was terrified. Someone's going to steal my idea. If I start talking to people, they're going to take it. No, they're not because they have a thousand other things in their life. So you can sit there at a keyboard and find about your competition and think about the best way to build the right team and you know, have an advisory board and build the best spreadsheet of your potential revenue and what you're going to pay for rent in year four of your IPO company. None of that matters unless you talk to customers. So if you're feeling stuck, if you're feeling like I'm just, you know, deluged with information, go out there and talk to potential customers, people who've never met you before, people on the street, people online, you know, cold calling, cold emailing, hey, I have this idea, concept, I'd love to run it by you. And that, for me, I think is the fuel for any entrepreneur is getting out there talking to customers because they don't know you. And if you're able to convince someone who doesn't know you that you might have something, it gives you the juice the next day to wake up and say, hey, I might actually have something here. What I've found is that talking to customers also lets you know what your differentiation is. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when we talk about basic like product marketing, right, you have this positioning thesis. So this is your understanding of who your perfect customer is, the target market, and your competitive advantage. So all it is is a thesis, right? It's a hypothesis. We have an idea. We put it on paper. But once you start talking to customers and you get that market-based feedback, you find out, oh, this is really who we serve. This is who benefits the most from what we're offering. And so I can tell when an entrepreneur hasn't been talking to customers because they're not confident in the way they're speaking. It's like, oh, who's your perfect customer? Well, we think it could be this, da, da, da. I'm like, you haven't been talking to anyone, have you? No. Because this is all assumptions. I want, like, if you talk to 100 people, you're going to have an understanding of, like, who your perfect customer is. And they're going to tell you that, right? The, the good entrepreneurs are going to tell you, listen, I need to, I want you to hear what my potential customers are saying. Let me show you an interview I've done with one of them or a survey I've done. Let me show you how excited they are for our product or service that potentially is coming down the pike. The real, real hard part though 
is to then talk to your potential customers and find out if they'll pay for it, right? Nonprofit, for-profit, let's just stick for the for-profit for a minute here. Everyone loves a new idea or a new concept or the passion behind a new entrepreneur. And it's what you see why Shark Tank is so successful because it's, you want to root for these people. The harder part at that interview stage when you're talking to customers is, would you actually pay for this? How much would you pay for it, right? Um, I had a you know company once that was a, we thought it was a brilliant idea. There was a recycled greeting card. So you'd read the greeting card when you're done with it. Instead of throwing the trash, you put it back in the mail and it could be melted down into um, like a plastic that you could use to make furniture, et cetera. Great idea. Talked to hundreds of people. They were like, oh my God, that's a really cool idea instead of throwing it in the trash. Nobody wanted to pay for it because it costs more money to put that back into the mail slot, an extra 40 cents per cart. That gets very expensive over time. So that, that final question of would you pay for it, that's where the rubber meets the road. So one of the ways I've found around that is to charge right up front, you know, because in the past, so many entrepreneurs are like, oh, run this survey uh, or people say, oh, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. But when you start charging people, you find out real quick if this is something that they were willing to pay for. There, there is a challenge with B2B versus B2C. So direct to consumer, right? Consumer goods, et cetera. Um, I agree with you that. To, to charge them directly. Are you going to buy this toothpaste? Don't tell me you're going to buy Actually buy it. That, that, that you can do. With direct-to-business, B2B type business where, where you're selling to a hospital or selling to a bank, it's, I think generally I would say yes. I do agree with you that you should force them to open up their pocketbook to figure a way in it. The, the, the hard part with that is they have such long processes to get into their finance systems that you might not survive the nine months it takes to get that contract back from them that would pay you. So I, I have seen a lot of companies say, you know what, for the big banks or the big healthcare systems, I'll give it to you for free for 90 days. And if you really, if you really like it, if it becomes a painkiller, then I'm willing to go move into my parents' attic for nine months waiting for that contract. But it's also safe to assume that before you go to these big banks or these big hospitals, you do have some kind of beta users. Like you validated that the thing, this thing works because what you don't want to do is oh, yeah. get Panasonic or Prudential for a hundred K contract and you have no idea how to invoice, right. how to get paid and you're all jacked up and you destroy your brand credibility day one. So I, I've had many an entrepreneur who uh, you know, I'm friends with who've been very successful and I was always shocked to, to learn from them that they turned down a Panasonic or a Comcast or you know, HBO, name a big company, right? They turn them down as first customers. Because we're, we're not ready. And if we built our company for a Comcast or Universal or, you know, a big bank, right from the jump, if you haven't had some, some testing, you're right, there's a good chance you're going to fail. Especially for first-time entrepreneurs. Just one thing, if you right. operate in a space, right. you already know how the infrastructure is. Yeah. You already know how to navigate, like you said, nine months till you get paid and those crazy net terms, et cetera. But like right out the gate, you know, so many of us assume like, Oh, who's your perfect customer? Oh, my perfect customer is HBO. Dude, you're in a one bedroom apartment (laughs) working, you know, at midnight. Like if you got, if you even went into that meeting with those executives, right? Chances are you're going to embarrass yourself. So we do have to have understand that there's like steps to the process, but we didn't even get into it and we could wrap up with it at the end. But 
validating that there is a market need. Is this is in your mind, is it at this phase that you're validating like, hey, do I need to move forward with this idea after I start talking to users, after I try to test the waters and see if people are willing to pay? Or do you looking at that even before you come up with your business idea? So first time entrepreneurs are crazy. So they're willing to take that leap of faith without some of that market research. What I say in the YouTube video though is, is, is there should be some time spent on the TAM, right? The total addressable market. Are people moving generally in this direction? How big is it, right? I, I hear a lot of entrepreneurs say, well, you know, if we launch our business in China and we get 1% of China, we're gonna be billionaires. Okay, that doesn't make any sense, right? We could all say that, but let's really narrow down. Okay, who is your target market? Is it people ages, you know, 22 to 32? How many of those people exist in America? Are they spending money on the thing that you believe they will spend money with you in? Are they going to somehow, right? So you, you have to do that market research. You have to understand how many people exist or how many businesses exist in your industry so that you have a sense of how big the pie could get. Is this a lifestyle business? Is this, you know, an IPO billion dollar business? Some of that will help you frame that out. All right, so after we talk to users, we've done our market research, we've tested, what's the next step in our business plan? So that is then sort of getting to the point where you have a rough sense and I, this is for first time entrepreneurs, a rough sense of how you're gonna make money and what your costs are. I see a lot of entrepreneurs spending so much time building out an Excel financial spreadsheet model of their business for the next seven years. All I think a first time entrepreneur has to do to start is think about, okay, I have a product or service that I'm gonna sell. Who's gonna pay for it? Like what ultimately could be the cost What's going to be the cost to me? What's going to be the cost to them? So that you're either, you know, hopefully a little bit profitable or over a certain amount of time, you'll, you'll generate more revenue. So what is your core revenue stream? Getting to the point. Do you have potential for ancillary revenue streams, right? So I'm talking about that vending machine for parents on the go. Pretty clear to understand how you're going to make money. We're going to sell diapers and our, it's, it's going to cost us money to buy those diapers to put in the machine. Fine. The next layer of an ancillary revenue is wait a minute, you're going to have people standing in front of a vending machine who are first-time parents, most likely. There's a lot of branding and advertising you can do to that parent. You can get them to switch diapers because they're in a moment of need. Oh my God, they went from a Huggies to a Pampers because of your machine? There's, there's some revenue there, right? So start exploring what your core revenue is, have a sense of that, and without getting distracted, because you got to prove out the core, then start adding on those potential ideas for ancillary revenue streams. How hard is this process for entrepreneurs? It's like writing a book. It's really hard. It's making fiction. It's a, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's making fiction out of thin air because it doesn't exist. No one's seen it yet. You haven't built it yet, but you have to act as if. So you have to imagine that parent standing in front of that vending machine, how much money she's willing to spend at that moment. Yep. And then also you're assuming how much these other brands are willing to pay you for helping them switch and you know that that's where that talking to the consumer helps right um i remember standing in front of that vending machine and let's say we were charging two dollars for a diaper well i could ask people what they're willing to pay and they'll say maybe three but then trying it out you know we ended up getting up to like ten dollars because you spent 70 bucks to get into SeaWorld, and you just bought a ten dollar coke and i'm charging you two dollars for a diaper Maybe I could charge a little more. I'll tell you what my secret is. I create a menu of products or services 
and I just keep it simple. Offer like three different products or services yep. at three different price points. Bravo, Alpha, Bravo, and Charlie. Let's be keep it simple, Marine. Nice. And I'll start noticing, like maybe you'll assume people are going to buy the Alpha, but then you just keep selling the Charlies, which is your premium offering. And so then I adjust my price point. Yep. And then I just do that process over and over and over again. And so, you know, I think the key is like getting it down on paper and again, testing in the market. But that's this is why it's impossible. It Writing down your vision is terrifying for anyone. If you don't have to be an entrepreneur or not, right? Writing down what you believe may or may not happen. Like, well, now I got to go make that happen. That's like, that's very daunting for most people. So while it's next to impossible, what I try to do in the YouTube video and I try to do in the class is say like, it's just a healthy exercise and it's terrifying and scary. And it probably all those different components, each one of them isn't going to come true. But if only one of them comes true, any one of those components where you sort of map out your competitive landscape or the team you want or the revenue streams, you're going to be onto something. It's going to be hard to stop you from at least trying. All right. So we've got our business model dialed in. So we know how we're going to make money. Where should we focus our attention next? So now we're at the go-to-market, right? Now we're at the point where over the next year, what does success look for, like for me? And does that propel me into year two or year five, right? So I invested in a gin company years ago. And the bet or the go-to-market strategy there was this was the first distillery in Pennsylvania since Prohibition. So interesting concept. I don't really drink, drink gin, but I thought, okay, there's a first there, right? That two-sentence pitch, it gets me hooked. Where ultimately... They had the right team. They had the right branding, the right marketing. It tasted good. But the go-to-market strategy of how what does success look for us in year one will get us to year five was if they were to partner with the state of Pennsylvania, which is the largest purchaser of alcohol in the world because everything is state-owned, that them documenting and them, them putting that in their business plan or in their pitch is that, hey, look, it's a big bet, but if we get the state of Pennsylvania as a customer – we think it's going to open up year five for us, right? Year one is, I don't know. Are they going to get the state of Pennsylvania? Maybe, maybe not. But I'm willing to, as an investor, and they're willing to, as a founding team, make that bet. So mapping out that sort of go-to-market is, if I do this, these five, six, seven, or eight other things may happen. It's a big if, but at least it's something where that makes sense. You've worked with tons of entrepreneurs at this point. You've had them as students in your class. When we start talking about go to market, right, is that common, that idea, or oh, if I get that one big sure bet, then that's going to scale us up. We'll make the return for our investors, et cetera, and demonstrate that gigantic growth that we need. Or is it also just the scrappiness? You know, it's like, how do I get those first 10 customers? You know, am I like sending direct emails? Am I reaching out? Because I feel like for first time founders, and I'm always telling them on this show of like, they jump on LinkedIn and they see these growth hackers spamming them, right? Right, And it's like, you haven't validated your business model yet. You haven't dialed in your branding. You haven't differentiated yourself. And so you're trying to scale up without really having a strong understanding of who you're for, how you're different, your price point, et cetera. Yeah, that's probably where most entrepreneurs fail, right? It's not necessarily, I mean, the team is hard, right? So that's another issue, but where you know you have the right team, you have the right concept, you have the right think thoughts about revenue streams, where most first-time entrepreneurs fail 
is that sort of roadmap for next steps, right? We all think, and I think most first-time entrepreneurs probably are good at this, of getting those first 10 customers, right? Because you just you just have a knack for talking and knack for persuasion. But are those 10 customers the people who are going to get you to 100? Or what are you going to do with those first 10 customers to guarantee that it becomes 100 and 1,000 and a million? If you don't at least have a thought or a plan to write that out, then it's not going to work. Those first, first 10 are going to be great customers, and that's all you're going to have. I was just having this conversation with my team because we've gone past our first 10 customers. Mm -hmm. But I told them that we are dialing in our process for delivering world-class podcasts. Yep. Like step-by-step step because that is our secret sauce. We're not a software-as-a-service company. It's our ability to deliver value to the clients, as we promised, which covers every step in the production process. So having that tight, having that buttoned up, and using our client base to refine that process as we scale up and start to onboard more clients. But to be quite frank, a lot of our listeners are going to be bootstrapped, yep. right? They're going to um, not have a lot of funding, mm -hmm. right? They're making it up as they go. And where they, I find where a lot of them make the mistake is over-promising and under-delivering. So getting, let's say, oh, Mr. Fitzgerald, me and you are going to do business. You really like what we offer. And I promise you all this stuff. And then you find out I'm super jacked up. You're like, what is going on with these invoices? No one's responding to us versus showing up to you and being human and saying, hi, Mr. Fitzgerald. I'm a first time founder. We're willing to grow. We're going to be making some mistakes along the way. Uh, but, you know, I want you to know that my team is 100 uh, percent confident that we're going to be able to deliver the value. And if we don't get it right yet, you know, please reach out to us. Let us know. But we're, we're committed. And when you're thinking about those first 10 customers and then, you know, for your business, for your, for your next hundred, think about the potential for three R's. Could those people be referrals? Do they have the reputation? If they're not going to refer, but you can use their logo or their brand, do they have the reputation that's going to get you a hundred more customers? Or even sweeter, could they be repeat customers? Right? So you think about reputation, repeat, referral. Any one of those is a growth strategy. I believe that if I get this customer, they're going to do one of those three things. I, as an investor, or I, as a first-time entrepreneur, or on the outside looking in, will say, I don't know if that's going to happen, but at least he's got a plan. And one of those things could happen. If, they don't, if, they're, if your first-time customers aren't going to refer you to anybody else, don't have a good reputation, and aren't going to be repeat customers, it's going to be hard to get to the next level. And I think that's where a big difference between small business and startups are. A lot of startups have high churn, especially early on. Sure. Small businesses, you start having churn, you know, you might struggle, right. right? So we've got to be a little bit careful about the clients we take on and ability that customer service, I found, is super important for small business owners, even just ability to respond to emails. Well, just think about like a first-time entrepreneur who's doing a food truck, Right. You want a repeat customer. You want them to refer you to others, right? You want them potentially, one of them maybe, to have enough of a reputation on social media or some presence where they're going to go out and evangelize for you. If you're just going to serve food to 10 people who come to your truck and there's no sort of hook to get them coming back or other people to kind of come to the food truck, then you're going to get stuck. One thing that comes up over and over again for first-time founders is this brand awareness, which ties to this go-to-market. How do I put myself out there? 
You know, how do we how do we get out there? Right now, you just gave an example with the gin company of, oh, us putting ourselves out there as partnering with the state of Pennsylvania. What advice do you give other entrepreneurs? Well, it can be annoying to family and friends because it gets redundant. But first time entrepreneurs should always be selling. And it's the opposite of the, you know, cheesy always be closing, which is which is real, but you should always be selling. And either you're selling yourself, your product, your team, your recruiting, your vision, whatever it may be, putting yourself out there, it could be just, you know, social media, et cetera. But I think putting yourself in front of customers and selling to them as if you already have this is a muscle that is completely underused because people oftentimes say, well, I'm not going to start talking about my idea or concept until it's like perfect and ready. I'm not going to start talking to customers until it's perfect and ready. It never will be. And you never will have a company if you do that. You wait until the, you know the, that perfect moment. You do have to get out there and talk ahead of time. What I tell founders is that when you start selling, though, that's the best brand awareness because you'll have this client Rolodex. 80% of business now is done via referrals, so people referring your products or service to other people. And so the more clients you're able to deliver value to, the more that they're going to tell, people are going to find out, they're going to post and share. And so really I try to just encourage people to got to sell. And I was literally on this podcast with an entrepreneur yesterday who launched a product, and I asked him how many has he sold, and he was like 10. <laughs> And I was Sorry. like, bro, you got to get out there and sell 100. Right. You know, don't don't think your idea is dead in the water, you know, but this idea that like, oh, we're going to throw up something on a website or post on social media, and if we build it, they're going to come. Right. That only happens in like a fairy tale. It, it doesn't happen. And I am definitely dating myself, but I, I think MC Hammer has come back around as a successful entrepreneur and investor. Mm -hmm. But what I always loved about his story was, you know, him selling records out of his trunk at Oakland A's baseball games. He made enough money doing that and he learned enough about how to sell that when he finally got in front of the record company executives, he almost didn't need it, but he knew how to sell to them, right? Just because he knew his customer. He knew the people who bought his CDs and he didn't necessarily need the record companies. Um, but he only learned that by driving to the stadium, sitting there with an open trunk, playing the music so people heard it, and then talking to people, right? So, um, and look, that's a lot easier for B2C companies where you can literally go to Penn Station down the street here and start talking to people and say, hey, would you buy this? Um, but it also works for B2B, right? If you're selling to a big bank or a big hospital system or big consulting firms, all those people have their professional contact information out there in the world. Start emailing them today. Why would you not? Love it. All right, so we've got our go-to-market strategy. We've launched. Our team is operating. All right, what's next in our, in our planning process? So... At some point, you're going to have to figure out, you know, how you're going to finance this. So are you going to be a bootstrapped entrepreneur? Do you have the revenue coming in a year from now and you're able to tackle that? If not, and you need to take out outside investment, right? That is then, do you have the right pitch deck to go in front of venture capital firms? Are you a venture-backed or the potential for a venture-backed business? Which is to say, can you ge generate massive returns for a VC nine years from now? Right? Do you have that kind of business? And that's what a venture capital firm is thinking about is, hey, look, I like Mike. He's a great guy. I like his concept. But ultimately, I don't think it's going to have venture back returns in nine years. Or, oh, my God, it will. So let me, Or it might. So let me try it out. So 
the next step, right, is, is you have the plan, you've written this out, you've thought it out. Now it's how you're going to afford this, how you're going to finance it. If you're going to raise venture capital, the same thing applies. Go out and start talking to them because the rejection you will hear from them, just like the rejection you'll hear from customers, is going to give you a vision of like, what am I saying right? What am I saying wrong? What do people gravitate to? And look at Netflix. They spoke to 99 investors until one of them said, huh, okay, maybe, right? But those 99 no's and the, the realization that this could not be a bootstrap business, they would have to have outside financing. That's, you know, that's something you have to begin pretty quickly as well. As an investor, I'm assuming you've invested across the board. Have you done small business? Have you done startups? What do you look for in small businesses versus startups? And if you don't take that venture backing from like a VC firm, what options are available? So on the first part, uh, having looked at both of those, um, I'd say for the startups is I, I go back to sort of that YouTube video and say like, okay, does this person have the right team? Is their vision crazy enough? Do they have the right go-to-market strategy? All those things, just kind of just check those boxes. And then it comes down to the team. Like, do I think that Mike can pull this off? That's it, right? Because you, you've already sold me on everything else. On the small businesses, are they in a sustainable, repeatable business, right? That's the food truck, small business probably. Is that sustainable for how long? What is the exit strategy? Is there one, right? Or is this, you know, 20 year operating, very successful food truck? Maybe, maybe you know, it could be. But are they in the right environment? Are they right in the physical environment? Do they have the right, you know, team, et cetera? If you, getting to the, the financing question, if you're not a venture-backed business, if you are unable to bootstrap, then you have two choices, right? You have either a revenue-generating business from day one, right? Or you have grants, government programs, et cetera, who can keep you afloat for a little bit. Most first-time entrepreneurs don't have, you know, house to mortgage. And I remember that, you know, first when my first company is I went to the bank and I thought, oh, this is what you do. Like you go and you talk to the bank and they say, well, what are you offering in return? And I had a car. Like, we don't want, that's not collateral. We don't want a car. Do you have a mortgage? Do you have a house? No. How do I get funding? So, you know, that's where it turned on to me. Okay, we got to go out and find outside finance, financing. And for me, right, I consider myself in that group. I funded my business with my first couple clients. Mm -hmm. So I had my hustle teaching on-site boxing classes, the companies in New York City metro area. Got my first client. I was like, okay, this is good. Got my second client. I was like, if I get one more, I validate the business model in my mind. I got the third client, and we were off to the races. Mm -hmm. And I learned some tricks from my business coach, which is why I think it's so important to have advisors about invoicing up front. At the very minimum, like 50% down, because yep. so many small business owners, that cash flow will kill you. Right. And when I'm talking to founders about who is your perfect customer – if you say Panasonic and Panasonic won't pay you for nine months, right? They yeah. might not be your perf perfect customer because you run out of money, you know, before you're able to even deliver the, the promise, um, uh, the, the value that you promise. Now, if you're living with your mom, which I was, and you had no overhead, right? And you were, you know, of a certain age where you didn't have that many expenses, you might be able to hold out for Panasonic. Right, you might be able to if it's worth it, but most people, like you said, can't. It, it, that that waiting that nine months, and it's not just Panasonic; it's every large company in the world. Right, it takes probably, if not nine months, longer to get them to pay that invoice. Um, I like the strategy of saying, "Hey, can you just pay ten percent upfront, or fifteen, or twenty percent?" 
because the processes for that large company to put you in their line item and do all the coding, et cetera, to get you that 10% check, if you can do that, then you are definitely onto something, but you're not going to get the full boat until, you know, a year later. One of the other reasons I'm excited to have you on this platform was, you know, when we were talking again, I mentioned a brand that I admire, which is Liquid Death, mm-hmm. right? Which has just been straight killing it. Yep. And, you know, I was talking about product and positioning. You're like, look, Mike, a lot of these guys already have money <laughs> so that they can nav. And I, I appreciate you for saying that because to me, that's keeping it real. Right. And so, you know, when you see entrepreneurs out there, investors, et cetera, we always see this startup founder who's like sleeping on the couch and brings this product to market, et cetera. But the reality of it is I'm also trying to promote this exclusive, inclusive entrepreneurship. And as you know, I just got done serving my country. Many of them have wives and families that they're taking care of. And so they might not be able to sleep on a couch to bring a venture to life. But should that shut them out of the entrepreneurial experience? It shouldn't. I mean, the, the costs of starting a business now, though, are dramatically lower. Just look at what you've been able to do just on the Internet, finding information to gather. To some degree, that saved you 190 grand going to get an MBA, right? Just trying to get that free information as much as you can. Um, so the, the resources to that first-time founder are there. Now, when you talk about software development and legal costs and things like that, I agree with you. That makes it very challenging for a first-time entrepreneur. But again, there are a lot of free programs that law firms are putting out there, software firms are putting out there that make it a little bit more affordable. Um, I don't know what the number is of successful exited billionaire already startups in the world, but I imagine the number is really high because they have a lot of money to burn and they have a lot of ability to kind of put as many different irons in the fire to see which one of them will hit. And then when they hit, we look at it and say, oh my God, that's a great product. Well, yeah, that investor was able to pour a hundred million dollars because they already have a billion dollars in the bank wasn't that much of a risk to them, but hey, they did it. You, know, you can't knock any successful entrepreneur. You can't knock it. I think so many of our community also romanticizes the venture-backed business. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the reality of that too and what's expected of the founder, the reports? Because I, I hear it both ways, right? On one end of the house, you check LinkedIn, so-and-so just raised $100 million. Woo-hoo! On the other side, you start talking to real founders, and they're like, don't, don't get venture-backed. <laughs> it's not what it, it's cracked up to be. It is if you need it, right? If you need hundreds of millions of dollars, truly need hundreds of millions of dollars to get your business profitable, then you need some sort of external backing, whether venture or otherwise. But if you don't and you have a quality of life that you want to get to and you can do that without venture funding, that is 100% the way to go. And I know the venture world and I'm a part of it, but I think they would agree with me as well is that if – the entrepreneur is able to preserve and protect her equity, right? Ownership of her own company for as far out and as long out as she can. That benefits her and that benefits the entrepreneurial community. And hopefully then she becomes a venture capitalist and she starts investing in people. The minute she gets diluted, and I've been in this position to 5%, 1% ownership of the company, it's, you know, it becomes less of a fair game where you're basically working for a corporation that you didn't think you were working for, and it's not yours. It's the venture community that took the capital. As you look back on your own entrepreneurial journey with all the different companies you've had, from the recycling one to the food vendor, I mean, the the vending machine, is there anything you would do different? Is there anything you wish you would have known before you launched that you do now? 
Yeah, I think some of the lessons we're talking about today. Um, you learned them the hard way, <laughs> right, basically right. what you're saying. Right. Um, you know, understanding the interest or de desire to pay from the customer is why I'm, you know, maybe doubling down on that today. Because if you're like me, you have a lot of good ideas. And if you're like me, you become passionate about those ideas. And you become almost self-delusional and confident in those ideas. Because people are like, oh my God, that, yeah, that, sound, that sounds good. But it's that, would they actually pay for it? That's where, you know, I think a lot of entrepreneurs leave things on the table, which are, I have left things on the table where I went out there because I was so excited about the concept and people bought into the concept, but it didn't necessarily have a real strong enough grasp on, yeah, but, you know, will people pay for this thing? Do you still have fun starting ventures, coming up with ideas? How do you, like, stop yourself from launching something new? I do. I, I constantly think of, you know, new ideas and concepts. It's hard not to. I think once you, once you've done it once and you realize it's sort of like the blue or the red pill matrix thing, once you do it once successfully, it's impossible to turn it off. As you, you know, grow older and you have different responsibilities and, you know, time shrinks in terms of what you're able to do on a day-to-day -day basis, it's hard to capitalize on those. But in a dream world, if I could sit around with people all day thinking of new concepts and new ideas and launch them, that would be heaven professionally for, for anybody like me. So as we wrap up here, I got a couple more questions for you. And I'm glad you just kind of talked about it because as a, I have a girlfriend, I don't have any kids, so I'm able to hustle and do a lot of the stuff I probably wouldn't be able to do if I had a, a family. But I also want to make space for our entrepreneurs that kind of do have families that are balancing, you know, the spouses, et cetera. Yep. What advice would you like to give to those founders that are responsible for a family as they navigate their journey? To be honest with their family, um, to a point. And I, I think you want to be inclusive to your family. You want to be um, open. But the entrepreneurial journey is a nightmare. It is really, really hard. So exposing that all the time to your family is probably too much, right? Um, exposing them to the good and the bad is very healthy, but bringing it home and, and sort of you know the, the nightmare of how challenging it is and how, how hard this is, not everybody gets that, and not everybody wants to get that um, just because they've chosen a different path. So you're, if you're in a relationship and your spouse has a very traditional path, let him or her be in that traditional path without trying to like suck them into how exciting your entrepreneurial journey is. Because I guarantee you the next day, it probably isn't as exciting and you're going to run back to him and her and share that. Um, so that's, that, that's one. The second is um, recognize and understand that if you have a family, the entrepreneurial journey affects all of them. I can remember with that vending machine for parents on the go, you know, we were at SeaWorld or yeah, we were at SeaWorld with my family. Now, most entrepreneur or most people go to SeaWorld and go on the rides and have a lot of fun. That's what you do. But I had a hard time stopping myself from checking on the units, right? Opening them up, seeing if they're working. I remember one of my sons, as we were opening up the unit and checking on it, he took handfuls of tampons. And now he's running up and down the aisles of SeaWorld, the streets with tampons. And people are looking around. And, you know, I kind of looked at my wife as like, That's, this, is, this is us, right? Like we're... We're all in this together, and it's kind of funny. I know it's annoying that we should just be on vacation, but I can't help myself. So you have to acknowledge, 
as an entrepreneur, that your whole family is going to be involved in this. And there are going to be moments where it's probably best to shield them from how impossible it is. I struggle with being on, just like you said. So even when I'm away, my girlfriend looks at me and she's like, what are you thinking about? I'm like, nothing. <laughs> I, right. might as well be, I might as well be in outer space. Remember back in the day, I used to say space cadets, yeah, yeah. just kind of looking up in the sky. But I do think it's important because, you know, you've been a part, I'm assuming, exits, mm -hmm. right? Founders that sacrifice everything to bring the venture to life. But what's on the other side of that exit? You know, what's wait for them at home? Right, right. You know, and are we happy with the lives and the waste we left on the way up? There, there's, and you, you do struggle as an entrepreneur that the grass is always greener. Right. Like sometimes you look at people who have a lawn mowing business and they're doing pretty well. You're like, oh, that seems kind of like safe, standard, simple. Right. Um, so I think you struggle with that as an entrepreneur. The grass is always greener. The other thing, though, that is powerful if you do it right is you do have some flexibility. Now, you always have people you work for, whether it's your customers or your employees, et cetera. But I've been lucky enough to be able to be there for my kids and my family and coach baseball games and all that kind of stuff. In the middle of a game, might I have to excuse myself to take a phone call? And that's the, you know, the penalty that I that I have for being that flexibility. Yes, but luckily I was able to kind of be there in that experience and and, and do that. So the the balance is tough. Well, as we close out here, we've got veteran entrepreneurs and military spouses tuning in from all over the country all over the world. I know we've talked about business planning. We talked about at the end a little about families and life, but what closer remarks would you like to leave our listeners with as they embark on their own entrepreneurial journey? And also as a community, how can we support and elevate you? So whether the content you've put out there on the internet already, this next phase in your own investor entrepreneur journey, please let us know. Well, the uh, closing remarks, I think I'll, I'll take from my wife, right? Um, in each one of the entrepreneurial journeys, you know, she has, when I've been down or struggling or have a hard time, you know, she's coming with this phrase, if it was easy, someone else would do it, right? You chose a really hard path. If it was easy, everybody would be doing it, but they're not. This is really, really hard. Um, but there is value in building things. You're going to look back as an entrepreneur and say, like I, I, either I was successful or I was not, but I tried. I actually tried to do this. I tried to do something new, unique. I thought it was the first of its kind. Either it worked, and that's great, or it didn't work, but you did something that 99% of the population is not doing. And there's a lot of excitement and value and passion in doing that. Um, and frankly, I would say, like, for us, if, we're, if you're listening to this or, you know, someone like Mike here, like, there's really no other choice. That's how you're thinking and you're listening to this because you want to get into that world. Um, how you can support me is, you know, if you see things I post on Twitter about companies I like or brands I like that I've helped start, um, I try to every semester, if I have a student in my class who has an idea or concept that I can buy, right, whether it's a pair of shoes or a jacket or food. So, you know, I, I think supporting that small entrepreneurial community um, is super powerful. Love it. Well, it's been a pleasure having you today. Where can people find you? How can they reach out to you? I know you mentioned Twitter. Are there any other channels that you send people to? Yeah, I'll just start Twitter uh, at Patrick K. Fitz. Well, be sure to follow him. I'm also going to include a link to your lecture okay. in the show notes. And I would love to be able to turn some of my notes from that lecture and this podcast into some kind of uh, 
a blog post or something for our listeners. That way they can have it as a reference point to come back to again and again. It's been an honor having you here today. I think the bunker is going to get a lot out of what we talked about. And it's just so great to be able to leverage platforms like this, leverage content, to leave the bur- leave the world better than we found it. And that's why I really enjoy podcasting, because we're able to scale knowledge and information in a way that was probably difficult back in the day. Yeah, you had to go to the library to, uh, to, to take out these books, and you only had them for a week. That's right. <laughs> so for all our listeners, do us a favor and be sure to subscribe to the Transition Podcast and Newsletter at the link in the show notes. I send out a podcast and newsletter at least once a week sharing the latest episode of The Transition. And if there's a topic you'd like me to cover on the show or in the newsletter, reach out to me at mike.stedman at bunkerlabs.org or email me, sorry, email me at mike.stedman at bunkerlabs.org or reach out to me on LinkedIn at Iron Mike Stedman. Until next time, everyone, peace, love, and have a great rest of your week.